Welcome. I'm trauma therapist and neuroscience consultant, Shauna Hill, and you're listening to the State Change Podcast. So although they did say I didn't have long to live, I thank them for sharing and said I didn't have much to go on at that point in my life, but I know that I knew that's something that my I mom was an otherworldly type figure. She had one foot in this reality and one foot somewhere else. You've been waiting for this senior year, all your like high school life, and suddenly now you're like being I don't in even public know service and being a politician. I have less privacy than I when would expect. When my mom started time. working from home, I saw her a lot more. She was in meetings all day, so it was like she wasn't there. But when we but bring everyone yeah. to the table, it's beautiful and it builds the social cohesion that is rapidly eroding in so many parts of the world. We talk with folks who faced some of life's most harrowing left turns and found their way through the fires of incredible trauma, pain, and adversity to a better state of things. Thanks for joining us. Human resilience is all around us. It's in the stories of everyday people who find themselves facing some of life's most harrowing and painful left turns, and it's born from the fires of trauma, loss, crisis, and injustice that seem to be burning hotter than ever these days. I've been working as a trauma psychotherapist, mental health program executive, and applied neuroscience educator and consultant for more than two decades which means that I've had the great privilege and deep challenge of holding hundreds, if not thousands of human beings in moments when they are on their knees, collapsed in overwhelm, exploding with emotion like a dam giving way, or disconnected and hidden deep inside, away from the world that harmed them. As someone who specialized for years in complex trauma and emergency mental health stabilization, I've sat with hundreds of people who want to die, with people who tried to die, with people who are trying to find a path of escape even as I sit with them, sometimes only making it to the moment of intervention with me because they failed in the endeavor of ending their suffering when someone forced their survival and plunked them involuntarily in a mental health crisis program in front of me. For more than half of my 22-year mental health career, I specialized in acute and complex child and family practice and emergency response programs which means that I learned everything I know about mental health practice, trauma, the human condition, and the socioeconomic factors that cause the vast majority of human suffering at the beginning of my career, and it has informed everything else I've done since. It used to literally be my job to meet, hold, and attempt to transmute oceans of human pain and suffering into a stable thread of connection and hope that people could reach out and touch and hopefully feel clearly enough to grab hold of. I was so good at this work. It was like I had been born to connect with strangers in their most vulnerable moments, and I performed so well that I was recruited and promoted into supervisory and leadership roles very young and moved through my career with an abundance of choices and opportunities to build and lead new programs, teach and train new clinicians, and to speak and train widely as an expert in trauma, disruptive behavior, and youth, young adult, and family mental health. I was generally held up by my employers and colleagues as a superlative example of what a clinical social worker could and should be doing in the world, 
and I felt successful about what I've now come to think of as my own terminal helpfulness. The episode you've tuned into today is not the story of my clinical education, training, or practice experience. And while it is a survivor story with some truly devastating, almost cartoonishly ironic details, it is not a story that ends tied up in a bow where I tell you that being an expert in trauma and applied neuroscience saved me and I live a perfectly healed life, better than new. It's true that I would not be here telling you this story today if I had not been exactly me with my exact educational and professional knowledge base, skill set, and network. And that in a very real way, I've had to save my own life and rehabilitate my own brain, body, and nervous system twice since 2015. While surrounded by elitely trained, caring healthcare professionals who had less information about the science and tools that would heal me than I did. And it's also true, as you'll hear in a minute, that it's a story of extreme will to live through immense physical and emotional suffering, existential terror, catastrophic losses, floods of deep grief, and surging volcanic anger, all swirling around inside of me in varying configurations between 2015 and 2021, when the events of my state change story took place. When I co-founded a mental health media and tech company in 2022, I knew that our first audio project would be this storytelling podcast on mental health resilience, because personal storytelling is by far the most powerful tool we have to engage and connect with others in order to teach, build trust, and live in more cohesive and healthy ways. I knew I would ask folks from all walks of life to come to a podcast studio and talk with me about the most painful, overwhelming, and reconfiguring experiences of their lives, with a specific focus on what helped them move through it and find their way to something better and more healed so that others could connect to their stories and learn new ideas and strategies they could use in their own lives. And I also knew that I would be the one to go first, telling my state change story through cancer, neurosurgery, brain injury, and chronic pain as a single working mother of young twins in the very first episode, both to meet the spirit of vulnerability and courage that I was asking our guests to bring, but also because my story has been churning around inside of me, punching and kicking at my mind and body, wanting to come out for years now. What I did not expect was that this podcast, and in fact, the very first episode of it that you're listening to right now, was going to be my newest teacher and a point of trauma healing. As an independent mental health and resilience consultant and trainer in healthcare and education and nonprofits. Let's say that again. I've worked as a child and family therapist, clinical supervisor, and program executive, and for the past seven years as an independent mental health and result. That's me earlier this year reading the scripted telling of my state change story before I had even interviewed a single guest or even fully determined the format of the show. Science-rooted models that apply, as we like to say, to anyone with a brain and a body. Do that one more time. Our company brings the science and tools of mental health to people directly. What you can't hear in this audio is how many panic attacks I had in the middle of the night while I was up late writing this meandering, overly scientific, crafted, sanitized version of cancer and its nuclear blast impact in my life and the lives of my children. I had thought I was more than ready to tell my story, 
And in fact, most of its main elements are already well known by my friends, family, community, and colleagues, largely because cancer as a single parent forces you to blast your experience out into your social world in order to crowdfund your survival and seek support and witness as you tumble into the black hole of your new reality. When I listened back to that first scripted episode, I hated it. I hated how strained and disconnected my voice sounded. I hated the density of the science and all the unnecessary detail I had packed into it, and I immediately emailed my producer and engineer that I wanted to scrap it and re-record, which I did, and then did again, and then again, and then began to avoid entirely, while I refocused myself on production of our guest episodes and other work on my plate as a startup CEO and working single mom. As production deadlines approached and I completed our final guest interviews, I got extremely anxious about figuring out how to get this episode right, because the truth is I couldn't figure out what was wrong with it. No matter how many times I reread, rewrote, or re-recorded my stage change story, I came away from it feeling uneasy and like it wasn't right. I needed to figure out what the hell was going on here, if for no other reason than I had a company to run and a life to lead. And also, I wanted this feeling out of me. I was sick of the cold hands, racing heart, and tight stomach that was following me around all day as recording and production deadlines loomed. I wanted an off-ramp to the activated, busy hyperactivity that had me pacing around my house and hopping on my bike or paddleboard every chance I got just to quiet the hum in my body, which was breaking through many of the most robust grounding techniques that normally work like a charm. I enlisted help and started talking to my therapist and close friends, many of whom are also therapists, which is a perk, about how making this episode was significantly activating increasingly unmanageable amounts of anxiety and discomfort in my body and nervous system, functionally incapacitating me from sitting down to write yet another draft or finish this episode. I have to finish the new script of my episode of the podcast, which is the first episode. And I have written and re-recorded this thing so many times because I kept wanting to do it in a new way after I would do more interviews on the show and hear how other people were telling their stories. Like I wanted to sort of meet the style they were bringing to it and have it sound less crafted but it does need to be scripted. This is me less than two weeks ago, leaving another long rambling voice note for a very patient friend as I tried to untangle the source of the racing heart and tight stomach that I was wrestling with as the final recording window to meet production timelines was barreling down on me. So there's like a lot of nuance to how to tell this story in a way that is honest and brave and accountable to the show and the guests but also sets me up for success and protects my boundaries. So I am now at the final deadline. There is no more time for me to change anything or rewrite anything, and I need to re-record it probably tomorrow. I have to hop in the studio. Otherwise, we won't have it edited and ready for next Wednesday's release. So my engineer and producer has been very patient with me, but what happens when I go to write this stuff is that... Um, Trauma activation comes up through my stomach, my heart, and, you know, then into my clunky, slow prefrontal cortex and thoughts. And, you know, it's not overwhelming. 
I've done a fuck ton of trauma integration on all aspects of this story. But what is triggering and still related to all that trauma is telling this story in a way where other people are going to hear it versus just in a conversation, you know, something that disappears into the ether. There's something about putting the story out in a way that will continue to exist after I tell it and that will tell it to anyone who wants to hear it that feels very like, unsafe and exposed. I talked extensively with my longtime research and training partner and State Change Media co-founder, Coley Hateman, who is also a career clinician and educator and was a guest of the podcast this season, who had shared her story of losing her mother to cancer when Coley was a teenager just a few months ago in the same studio I'm sitting in now. After telling her last week that I had deleted every previous draft of the script and was considering telling my story unscripted just to get out of this purgatory, we could both see, finally, what I was bumping into. This episode, not feeling perfect in the writing of it, but feeling correct in the bringing in all this organic content that I've created over years of time. I'm just going to pull some of it. I'm not going to do like a big exhaustive thing, but just pulling some of it that's helpful to like weave in and salt and pepper through the audio. And it's better that way. Coley went on one of her infamous walks and called and left me a powerful message. Okay, so I'm thinking about you and your story and like the prep you're trying to do tonight. And I want you to hear this. You are the most, single most powerful person I know, period. You have been through a lot. You will be through more. You know what you're doing. You do not need to prep. You do not need to stay up all night. And you have got this. And whatever comes and whatever state you have to be in, whatever people see, whatever they don't see, it doesn't matter like at all. 100% does not matter. Because everything else you have to offer is like a fucking supernova. And they're just going to take it and go, wow. So, don't stay up all night, okay? Lots of love. Bye. Last week, after realizing that this debut episode of my own podcast was calling on me to be far braver, more honest, and less contained with my state change story, I texted podcasting and journalism icon Hannah Rosen, best known for her own brave, honest, and uncontained work. Through a personal connection, I had built a relationship with Hannah last year. I'd been asking myself, WWHRD, what would Hannah Rosen do? I texted her. I was just making a big final editing decision and actually thought, well, what would Hannah Rosen do? LOL. And then I did that. After you listen, I'll tell you my guess, and you can tell me if I was right? Question mark? Hannah Rosen writes back, haha, of course. I say, I hope I got it right. Hint. I did the much braver, more true thing, even though it was freaking me out. And the second I called it and started down the new road, the entire project leveled up into a whole new thing that I like so much that it scares me. That seems right, right? You're supposed to freak yourself out and then Thelma and Louise it? Hannah Rosen writes back, yes, with three S's. And then in parentheses, except don't die. So yes, but different ending. 
And I write back, well, I'm definitely not going to die from podcasting if I didn't die from cancer. that came out in my unexpected struggle to make this episode is that there is nothing polished, professional, or boundaried about my experience or my story. There's nothing clean or scientific or comprehensive to say about the impact that waking up from my 2016 neurosurgery and skull reconstruction and a completely changed brain, body, and life had on me and my children. My efforts to script the telling of this to the world on a podcast was an outgrowth of my professional training to practice from a place of no self so that therapists and healthcare providers more generally can be held 24-7 as examples of well-being to our clients and patients and to prevent the harms or changes to the process that would come if we ever showed our clients our personal struggles. You know what the real lesson of going through these kinds of experiences is that there's no such thing as control and there is no such thing as perfect. There is no such thing as performing perfectly and living in the world in some kind of way where you get to be the architect and the conductor all the time. And all those years when I thought that I was the architect of my own success, my own life, my own situation, you know, most of that was an illusion. I realized that the churning sense of impending danger within my scripted story and this episode was not coming from any details of the story itself, largely because I've used neuroscience-rooted trauma integration methods to literally process most of the stored trauma out of my system over the past seven years. It was coming from a place I didn't know was there. It was coming from my fear that standing in front of the world as a trauma and resilience science expert and social entrepreneur working in laser focus for years on end to fling the tools and science of mental health to the masses at scale as fast as possible was incompatible with my own humanity, vulnerability, and experience. I had known the story was a great teaching tool, but I faced great risk if telling my story in any way compromised my professional reputation, my impact potential, or my ability to earn a living and care for my family. It's better if I just put out there what comes in the moment and let it speak for itself and stop trying to do this thing of creating a perfect telling of this wildly dynamic, nuanced, overwhelming, longitudinal series of life experiences. The truth is, my children and I have been made so vulnerable in so many ways, so many times over, by cancer and brain injury and their aftermath, that I did not trust all of you, the listeners, my clients, future state change media customers and collaborators, to hold it and me in good faith and allow me to continue to make my living as an expert in how to heal. If you knew how hard and nonlinear it can be or came to see me as disabled, incompetent or unprofessional, what I didn't anticipate in this process was that I needed to reconcile my 22 years of professional training to sterilize myself out of any public awareness of my personal life and vulnerability. Therapists are trained holders and receivers of other people's stories, and we are held, consciously and unconsciously, by clients and by the public in general as the obligated tenders of the emotional and behavioral health of the community. We are trained very early to leave self at the door in the work, to be needless, 
wantless and all-knowing in any space where we are identified as a mental health professional at all, even when we are places and spaces where we're not providing any clinical care or consenting to a professional role. Over time, we all find ways to manage this feeling of belonging to the world, and we become more authentic and human in our clinical work, realizing the limitations and harms of one-way mirror relational dynamics. But we have no professional models or roadmaps for how to say to the world, I'm an expert in this, I'm trained, I can help you, and I also hurt. This morning, I woke up and deleted the latest version of this episode script and drafted a few new paragraphs of the introduction you've just heard so that I can rise to answer my own call to wholehearted, courageous storytelling by answering my own interview questions unscripted. What happened? What were the hardest parts? What helped and made a difference? What are the lessons you've learned from it? How do you live differently now? I decided to follow the advice of a close friend and business advisor who reminds me regularly to hold the vision and trust the process and I've asked my producer and sound engineer, Will, to hold the space with me today while I record, something I trust him to do because he's held this project, my vision for it, and our guests with extraordinary compassion, safety, and witness, and also because he accepted my invitation last spring to tell his own remarkable state change story, which you will hear later this season. So here it is, my state change story, unscripted, imperfect, unpolished, and told not as an expert in trauma and applied neuroscience, or as a podcast host and media company CEO, or even as a mother. Here is my story told as a person, a woman walking around with a story inside me that I am ready to labor out and into the world in whatever form it comes. Okay, so Shauna, <laughs> here we're here we in the studio. We sure are. It's been a long time coming. So where does your state change story begin? What happened? You know, the real beginning is the beginning of the medical crisis that was building in my body. And I now know that that was probably building for a long time, you know, before the story I'm here to tell today happened. But... In 2015, my ex-spouse and I had decided to relocate back to Vermont, which is where I grew up and where my family was. And at that time, Seattle had just become really unlivable. And we really wanted a different kind of life. So we did a thing that I, I look back on and I think, oh, in some ways this was the nail in my support network coffin. <laughs> but we relocated back here to Vermont 15 years after I'd left the state. G H I J K L M N O P Q R S T U V. My health Ready? sort of looked like a lot of working new mom's health looked, right? Like I was really tired, struggling with, you know, aches and pains, back stuff, rashes, things like that, that I can see now were information that I was in great health. And so I think in some ways the story really begins with the story of working motherhood of young children and the way that that reality plays out in the, the bodies 
of women and of parents generally, but especially of women. And with what I now know, I can see, you know, that's the precursor <laughs> to the big events was that between their prematurity, their NICU time, you know, having two infants with health issues and working and moving cross country and all of that, I had just been living in my body in a way that was devoid of any ability to tend it. So in some ways, the story starts with motherhood and where your body just isn't your own and can't be in a million ways. And you go into sort of a dissociative place about that, right? You, you, you didn't get enough sleep so many nights in a row that you are now making friends with the feeling of being exhausted. So it stops being interesting information <laughs> that you're tired because it's just reality. You got a boo-boo? You want me to get you? I'm going to. I'm going to get you. In 2015, we'd been back in Vermont about a year and a half, and things looked good in my life, I thought. They were not easy, and I wasn't feeling great, but they looked like they had the ingredients for this life I wanted for my kids and my family. And instead, my marriage sort of abruptly ruptured in a way I, I didn't expect and didn't know was coming. I wasn't worried that all was lost or anything like that. Like, I knew it was an experience we could move through. And by... 2016, I was living a whole different life than I'd been living the year before. I had moved out of our big, beautiful, comfortable rental home and instead was living in this very dark, mildewy, terrible apartment in a part of town that felt really isolated and uncomfortable and sort of unhappy to me and did not look anything like I thought, like an environment to raise my children should look. And... I still had this kind of idea, like, this all changes, this all resolves. I, I felt like it was temporary. But I remember the feeling in my body in the spring of 2016 was one of extreme depletion from critical stress and change and probably suspended loss. I hadn't had a chance to process that. I was situated very quickly to be solo parenting. And, you know, anyone who's parented young children knows that parenting babies and toddlers in particular is a all-consuming endeavor. If they are awake, you are on. And there's so much physical labor to it. There's so many routines. There's so many moving parts. There's so much to track. And then there's sicknesses and diapers and being out of supplies. I knew it would take some time to situate things, and I expected to be feeling badly. So how long was it between you feeling like you had everything under control, so to speak, mm -hmm. and when you started to slide? I'd say spring of 2015, it felt like, okay, we're tired and, you know, life has not been easy with preemie twins and a move, but like, we're okay. Things are looking up. And within one year, 12 months, I was living in that other situation. And one part of the story is also that childcare is so expensive. And I had a big job leading a residential mental health program. And that meant supervising a big team and occasionally crises and sometimes getting calls. You know, it was a high responsibility job. And I was suddenly working with half as much money and essentially the same amount of expenses. They're having a fight in there over yelling. She was making dinosaur noises. He started yelling and now she's yelling because he's yelling. <laughs> hey, you guys need to calm down. No more yelling. Uh-uh.
All right, I'm going in. And then there was the second sort of like moment of where the story begins. You know, I was getting ready, the kids ready for school one day. I was getting breakfast going and I would probably be leaving the house. I just remember like feeling the, you know, watching the clock and like I got to get out the door and all of that. And I touched my head and felt this bump, like a, like a goose egg, like maybe I bumped my head. It was in my hair on my scalp above my left eyebrow. And at the time, I do remember noticing it because I remember thinking like, oh my God, the kids must have bumped me with something really hard and I didn't even notice because look at how stressed I am. And about a month later, I was wondering why this thing wasn't there. And it was a little bigger and it was sore, but I, you know, nothing else was obviously wrong other than extreme fatigue. I was having a lot of what seemed at the time like disparate health issues. So I had started developing rapid onset food allergies to foods I'd been eating my whole life. I would bite into a tomato or an apple and I would break out in hives. I started having a variety of different unusual and somewhat rare inflammatory skin rashes. I now know that all of these were connected to really collapsing immune health. And if your immune health is collapsing underneath, then cancer cells can grow into cancer, rashes will form, allergies will form, you know, these things are, are systemic. But at the time, I wasn't trained really to understand that as a healthcare professional yet. So I was aware I had some stuff going on, but not piecing together that there was like a big systemic crisis. And, you know, there was a psychiatrist that I worked with who had also been an emergency medicine doctor and done some first response medicine and stuff. And I had him eyeball it. He was kind of like, huh, could be a cyst, you know. And he, he, he said, you know, get someone to check it. You know, he wasn't too worried. I get into the doctor a few weeks later, and I'm worried about these allergies and these rashes because they're the things that are most uncomfortable for me. And I mentioned the bump, and he, he feels the bump. And then he moves his hands to my lymph nodes behind my ears, and they were very swollen, which I had not noticed. He said, I think that we should look at this, and I think we should do a scan and see, you know, like, what is this bump? And I think maybe even that day I went up the hill to the little local hospital and had a, I think it was like a simple CT scan. And I get a call, I think it was a call, might have been like a message, but I got a call basically saying, we want to do a different kind of scan. There's something there, right? And this is the first time I remember like, like, hmm, is there something really wrong with me? But again, the demands of my life at that time, like I had two seconds to think about it before I'm sure I had to go into a staff meeting or I had some crisis or some kid thing to do. So there wasn't like a lot of time to sit and put any of this together. And many areas of my life at that time operated like that, where if it wasn't right in front of me, I wasn't going to be able to attend it. I had to just keep kicking the can down the road on a lot of thinking or, you know, problem solving I would do just because it wasn't on fire. Ah! Oh my goodness, he has some stinky feet. Ah! Oh my gosh, those are the worst. Hey, you! Anyone who's raised three-year-olds knows what I mean when I say so. You know, your your emotion systems <laughs> and your personality do some really big growing and changing in that year. And so there was just like a lot of like chaos acting and crying all the time about boots and food and just like, you know, it was just like kind of an intense, intense developmental period with twins alone. And so between the, the routines and physical labor and trying to be present for them and not feeling great and having a big job where I'm also exhausted... I would quite literally not have my 
thoughts to myself until 10 p.m. when I finished the laundry. This apartment didn't even have a bathtub, so I was bathing them in this like tin bin in my own kitchen, which I had to fill and then dump. The labor of it was really difficult. And so I think I compartmentalized a little bit, and I was like, well, they will tell me when it's a problem. And until then, I can't even worry about it, right? So the following week was the final divorce hearing. So I drove from the courthouse to the hospital to go do these second scans. And then this thing happened, and this is the part of the story that I think of as the fault line. You know, people who have experienced certain magnitudes of trauma will talk about this, that there's a thing that came into my awareness and then moved through my body, my nervous system, and reconfigured me, and I could feel it in real time. This scan led to that moment. On Saturday night, so I think this was on a Thursday, and on the Saturday night, I am having something that in cancer circles we call scanxiety, which is your tests are on X date and you're not gonna have any information until four days, a week. And if there's a weekend in there, and sometimes you have no idea, it could be up to a week. So there's a lot of suffering in the waiting. And I was kind of clawing my way through a weekend and the waiting, and I was struggling to sleep because I was so stressed. And I got this ping in my, my chart app in my phone. This was 2016, so not everybody had their healthcare portal on their phone probably at that time, but I, I did. It was a new thing you could sign up for, and I had it. And it's like, you have a new result. And so it's about 11.30 p.m., right? And I ping, and I open it, and... It's a written radiology report, so I can't see any scans. There's no images, which at the time I wasn't really trained to do much with those anyway. But I read the radiology report, and I had worked in hospitals, and I had been a medical social worker and emergency room social worker. So I sort of knew how that all worked. And I knew that the early radiologists are just there to identify a name and point people in a direction. And that sometimes their notes are, are like boring. Basically, it's not a lot of story in there, right? It's like, I see this and I don't see that. And that's what I expected. But instead, my note said, there's an aggressive tumor destroying bone has broken through into the dura and pushing into the left frontal lobe. Even telling this now, I can feel my body activate a little. I've done a lot of trauma integration on this, but it was like I read those words over, over and over, aggressive tumor destroying bone, aggressive tumor destroying bone, broken through into the brain, left frontal lobe. And it was like my body was doing two things at once, like the center, you know, which is like our polyvagal superhighway where our threat response activation is it was like burning like my heart was burning my stomach was burning but the rest of me felt like I was just pixelating into disconnection right which I was that's a dissociative response and then I sort of have this moment of looking around and realizing it's the middle of the night on a Saturday and then you have no information to go on for the no whole information no one to hours. talk to or ask anything so that moment was the fault line I, I don't know that my body or brain or life have ever felt the same since I read those words. And what happened next was several months of 
what I consider sort of like this weird in-between part of the cancer experience. Immediately when something like this happens, they want you to get worked up. And suddenly I had healthcare appointments like everywhere, like in five minutes, you have to go to all those appointments to even know what you're dealing with, right? Like there's no way to make a plan. There's no way to do anything. You just have to go through this. So I spent the next several months in this fog of, of using the routine of the day with the children and my job as like an architecture, like a scaffolding to hold on to, to like move myself, to organize myself. Because at that time, I had been a trauma clinician a very long time. I had begun my training in neuroscience and neurobiology and was really getting more interested in systemic and integrative health. And I knew enough about that as well as about attachment and pediatric neurodevelopment and my children's growing brains and bodies that I knew that what they needed was also something that would help me, which was for the day and the routine and these things to feel the same, to, to go the same way, that we needed to keep that moving for everyone and that everyone would be regulated and kind of held by that, right? So I went into this multi-month period of time that in my mind is a real blurry montage of appointment after appointment after appointment after appointment, a lot of very scary procedures, the first of those was a surgical biopsy. And, you know, it was an awake surgical biopsy with like a big team. They had to shave my hair just to biopsy and find out what the tumor was, right? And um, it was the first big like, oh shit, I have a problem and the world's gonna know. Like now I have a shaved quadrant of my head. I sort of assumed this was going to be something that all the doctors would know what to do with. But actually my doctor called me, my primary care doctor called me at work and he said, okay, I have the test results back. Do you want them now? Or would you like to come over and come into the office? And I'll talk it through with you. And I said, please, you know, just tell me now. And he said, okay, this is something that I haven't even heard of since med school. I just remember being like, oh God, oh God. And he said, you know, it's this condition. I don't know much about it. I actually just had to look it back up. I, it appears to be a cancer, but it used to be understood as, as sort of like a, its own blood disorder. It turns out it is a blood cancer, but he didn't know that at the time, and it's called Langerhans cell histiocytosis, LCH. And he said, all I do know about it is that it is extremely, extremely rare. It's like an, an orphan condition. We're going to have to bring in some other help. So something happened where I ended up at home. I don't remember what I said or did. I just know that I went home, and my children weren't there, and I was alone in the house. And that girlfriend drove up from the part of the state she lived in. I remember at one point there was a knock on the door. My boss came by apparently, you know, to, to bring flowers and see if I was okay. I just barely remember that. So that led to several weeks, of course, of what anybody is going to do in the situation where I am Googling this at night. I am reading everything I can. And what I learned was this condition is primarily found in babies and toddlers, but it is not genetic it is an acquired mutation, meaning most likely some kind of toxic exposure. And that there's only a handful, you know, a few hundred adults in the world who have this. So wherever these white blood cells start to have their neoplasm process, you will end up with these sort of, they call them lytic lesions, these tumors that actually eat tissue away as the cancer grows. So they had immediately had to start checking me because LCH can be multi-system or multifocal, meaning, and that's, that's going to determine how you're going to do. If you have one tumor, 
in a certain system or part of the body where it's not too big of a deal or causing too much of a problem, then you have those options. But if you have 18 tumors, like some of these babies or other people do, in your lungs, in your brain, you know, in other places, then your prognosis is much different. So by the time I had come up for air from my own deep dive, my own sense of my situation was very dire. What I read was that 10% of LCH patients die, but a huge number of them end up permanently disabled or get secondary cancers. And suddenly I just like, I'm looking at my life, I'm looking at that apartment, I'm looking at the situation, and I just, it's like I recognize I am in a whole new thing. My life just changed entirely. Like everything I think about, everything I care about, everything I'm doing is back in the hopper. So that was the first thing. And the second thing that happened that I think actually really saved me was that because of my training and my background and my experience, you know, my brain automatically did this enormous, massive algorithmic calculation of the entire canon of mental health, attachment science, neurobiology, everything I know about child development, about families, about health, about everything I knew. And it just sort of spit out to me very quickly a map of what to solve for and what not to. Again, I didn't have to try to do it. I just knew. I knew I was going to be in a fight for my life and my ability to work and function and parent. I knew I was going to have to um, make plans for if I didn't make it. And I didn't know how to even think about that. I knew I was going to need money, right? Like I could just see it. And I could also see that everything else I cared about and spent my time thinking about was already fucked, right? Like that's really what it was. I could see like, it doesn't really matter what preschool we get into. It doesn't matter if we're in this apartment or another one. You know, it doesn't matter if I get them the balance bike toy at this age or that age or when they end up potty trained. All the things that my mind thought mattered did not matter. And what did matter Literally, I thought about this in brain science terms, quite literally. What, what was going to matter was how it felt in our home, like how it felt to be there. And if we ha- were able to maintain routines and relationships, because at that developmental stage, everything else is up for grabs. My first degrees were in sociology, anthropology, and women's study. I multiple times have walked myself back from getting a you know, doctorate degree and um, sociology or social science before I became a clinician. And, you know, then I'd been working as a clinician studying neuroscience. So I had this very macro, meso, micro knowledge base, and it shot out to me, like, right now, this matters and that doesn't. And I think any other person in that situation would have struggled with that part and needed help with that. And instead, I just, like, had a plan, just didn't even question it. If I hadn't, if I had been someone who sells cars for a living, right, like if I did some other thing and didn't have any of that, I can see how I might never have been able to lead my own experience. You know, there's a kind of therapy that is called internal family systems that's really, really fabulous. And it's often called parts work. And it really helps folks understand why we have different parts of us or different ways we will act and behave and feel and occupy, especially in different settings. My therapist and I always talk about how in that moment, once I had that diagnosis right before a plan was made in that weird interim period that a new part was born in me, right? And we call it like catness. This was like a Hunger Games feeling. Like I was internally going to have to pick a path of like collapse or rise to this. And I rose to it. And I moved into this like battle mode, not from a place of aggression. And in fact, physically, I was feeling terrible, but from a place of mindset. And 
Having that mindset and having that knowledge base changed everything about what happened next. One of the hardest parts was nighttime, right? And, and I think that's true for a lot of people going through a thing, frankly, because in whatever the busyness of your day involves, you can put your mind to something, right? And it might be miserable, it could be terrible, but it is occupied. And my body and mind had no choice but to be occupied during the day. I, I wish I could have rested and had more, I mean, I wish I had more resources in my life to do that, and I didn't. But then what happens is you slog through that evening and you, you know, get the kids to bed, which is itself a whole accomplishment every night, you know, and there's like all that mess and everything. And then, then you are alone in your body, in the dark or in your tiny place in the quiet. And you are sitting with that circumstance by yourself. And, and then I'm also having anxiety about not sleeping and I have work tomorrow and the whole thing. And, 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 you know, that was when the existential panic would come in. It was when I could feel terror rise up in my body and have to really work with that. And it was also when I would, you know, I would do this thing. I think of this now, it just breaks my heart thinking about myself doing this, but I would do this thing sometimes where my eyes would start to silently cry, not cry like I was going to have a cry, like I was crying, but like without me even realizing there was so much happening in me, my eyes would just start to like leak and stream tears and it would happen toward the end of the day when I was more tired and I would sometimes have to hide it from the kids they weren't quite in bed yet they would lay down in the toddler beds and I would lay there with them in the dark for like 20 minutes just like a thing that parents are hijacked by doing <laughs> in modern life and I would hold one hand of one kid and one hand of the other and lay there with the sound machine on and the whole thing because that's the routine and I would be just silently weeping and you know there's some really important amazing science about tears that we now understand and, and didn't used to earlier in my career, which is that crying tears is part of an integrating process that is built into us evolutionarily to filter out chemistry and to integrate emotion cues and chemicals out of us to make space for the next ones, right? And, and that it's very healthy because it quite literally releases those cues. If you chemically tested sadness tears and fear tears or something, they're gonna look different. So I let myself do it. I never was one of those people who was like, don't cry. I knew I needed to, but it also felt like, don't let it go, don't let it go, don't let it go. Like, like let it slowly leak out in these terrible nights. Do not, like, don't let a real sob out because it was almost like my body knew I cannot get up tomorrow and do these diapers and those staff meetings and all of this. If I really let my body show me it's as though you didn't even have a day to let yourself fully feel any of it. And in fact, it would be several years before I did. Another hard part was in, the, you know, in all that diagnostic period, there was a lot of confusion and a lot of questions, even though I had dozens of specialists. And, you know, I, I suddenly had healthcare professionals in Boston, at Dana-Farber, at Dartmouth-Hitchcock, here in UVM system in Vermont. I had seen a couple of different oncologists and found somebody at Dartmouth that was going to kind of coordinate my care, who I really liked and trusted and still do. But they, none of them had ever even seen this in their career. A lot was going on. There were all these assessment plans made. It involved basically checking out every system in my body in a variety of different ways. They were all time sensitive because they needed to know, was there more LCH, right? I'm missing work suddenly. I got to deal with my child care and, you know, 
family starts to help and everyone knows I've got a thing going on, but I don't really know what I'm, what the plan is. Like, what am I doing? Right. And so it involved going to these procedures, but with no space to like even think about what I was walking into. So by the time I would get like to Dartmouth or to Dana-Farber in Boston for the PET scan day or the bone marrow biopsy day, I wouldn't even be thinking about the fact that I was having a bone marrow biopsy until I'm like in the parking garage underneath the hospital because there were so many other things happening and I didn't have any space or give or help with that. You know, in some ways, maybe this was a little protective. I didn't spend all my time sitting around talking or thinking about it, but it also meant that I was constantly taking in physical trauma, a lot of stressful information, a lot of contradictory information, and having some additional traumatic experiences. So for example, the bone marrow biopsy is a very tricky procedure. If you miss, right, it's a very serious thing. It is very painful often for people. And it is also the results of this mean two totally different things in my life. If there is LCH in my bone marrow, I have a completely different prognosis, right? And something on my scans had been making them think they need to look there. I can't even remember now. But I was aware that like this could be terrible or liberating information and that I needed this done quickly. When I got to the actual procedure, I don't know if they missed, I can't even remember, but something happened where I ended up in pretty explosive pain very quickly. You know, I'm laying on my stomach. During the procedure. During the procedure. And you were awake. Yeah, I was awake. I think I was medicated, but awake. And I essentially went into shock. My vitals plummeted lost consciousness, right? This whole like crisis happens, multiple people have to come in. And, you know, I was probably only in there a half an hour. The whole thing was probably a half an hour. But to this day, if I have any kind of healthcare experience or other experience that involves my spine, I still have a trauma activation response in my body, even though I've actually attempted to do some integrating on this because of how traumatic that experience was. And I don't mean that in a woo-woo way. I mean, this is neuroscience, right? Like my spine, you know, I had to have a cortisone shot in my, my C-spine, I don't know, six months ago or something. And the shot itself was fine and it did its job. But I spent three days grounding the full body trauma activation that came out of tolerating the 15 minutes of that procedure. One of the hardest parts of cancer or serious illness or injury like this is that the care itself is so traumatic. And so what's actually happening is you are experiencing what we call compound trauma, right? Traumas that keep happening in the same cycle as the one you're already going through. And they interact with each other like billiards balls on a billiard table, right? It is not this happens, then that happens although that's how we tend to tell it. Right. It's, it's not like, linear. Yeah. It's like this came into your universe and reconfigured it this way. And then this and then this. You know, what ended up happening was basically nobody knows what's the best plan. That's basically what happened with all that. I did not have other tumors, which was fantastic, but I was in really bad shape. My inflammation markers off the charts. Um, my blood work was not looking good. Basically, they said, you're too young for us to try radiation, let's not try chemo, let's do neurosurgery. Let's see if we can do this. And they had me meet with a neurosurgeon who was like, this is so easy. This is like the front door of the brain, right? Like he was so sure. And I felt so reassured by that. And he was like, yeah, yeah, do this, no problem. And I was like, sold. And he said, you know, you can be back at work in a month. And I thought, oh, thank God, because I don't have any paid time off, right? So I'm thinking I have an amazing plan now. I'm gonna get this thing cut out of me. And the plan was, 
essentially cut out the section of the, the skull holding the tumor, right, a large circular section, pull out that section of the skull, look at the dura, scrape the cancer cells, like dig for cancer there, right? And then once that part's done, you put in wire mesh, you put in bone cement, just like drywall, you like, you know, patch it up. Oh my God. They'll sew me up. And he's like, you'll be back at work in a month. And his mindset was reassuring to me, to my family. And, but I'm going to be really honest. What actually was going on is the alternative was 12 months of chemo, you know, doing, I think it was like two weeks on two weeks off for 12 months for something that there was no data with this, with this rare thing was necessarily going to do anything. And I didn't have it anywhere else. So the chemo is just going to be coursing through me. Right. It was like, what choice did I have? And I think about this now, what I wish is that I had known to ask more questions. And I do think I might've still done the surgery, but I think I might've approached it differently. Well, I mean, how long had you been searching at this point? The plan was made, you know, my surgery was July 1st, 2016. And so I was diagnosed in May, early May. So early May to July is a long time to be told that you have something very rare and terrible so that no two, one's ever seen. Two months of everything's up in the air. Yes. You have no ground under your feet. And then you finally hear after you seeing dozens of healthcare providers, you hear one voice telling you, I can do this. It felt like an off-ramp to this nightmare. And not that I explicitly thought like, oh, this will fix everything. Sure. But I actually think a lot about this now that in healthcare, when we give some information or a plan for anything, we have to pay attention to the story we're telling them and to the fact that the day after that surgery is just as important as the day of that surgery. And I, I was oversimplified and that's a trauma response. You know, in my mind, it was like, great, neurosurgery, it'll work out. And I'll have it and I'll rehab and I'll get right back at work and it'll be no problem and I'll fix my life and then the kids and I'll have a good life. And that is not what happened. So I have neurosurgery on July 16th and, you know, by this time everyone knows. Everyone knows I'm sick and there's a Facebook page about it. And there was this community of women that I was a part of online, this mom's group that I'd been a part of for several years that was a huge part of my life. It was mostly women in Seattle, where I had been from. And, you know, it was a place you went every day, right? One of those, like, old olden days Facebook mom group, but really, really tight, very powerful community. And those people had supported me through my divorce. They knew a lot about my life. So that community there had been kind of rallying and had, had you know, these women were sending me headscarves. They were sending me poetry. They were sending me crystals. They were really showing up. And I think that I was, I was taking it, right? Like I was showing up for that support because I didn't have it. And I think in that interim period, right up leading up to the surgery, my idea was that after this, I would be healed. I would kind of go back to being the superhero, social worky best friend. And in my imagination of that, I would be able to come back and thank everybody and just be like, thank you so much, and I'm cool now, and now I can go back to helping you with your crisis, right? Like, I was struggling with the conspicuousness in that community, and frankly, in communities in general, in all of my communities. Hey, everybody. It's Shauna. Um, uh, another group that I'm in on Facebook, everybody does these videos all the time, and I thought I would try one because it's easier 
been typing everything out, but I have a really awesome update um, from today. I spent the whole day at Dartmouth-Hitchcock um, Medical Center down in uh, Hanover, New Hampshire, <laughs> and um, met with a neurosurgeon in the morning. So and at work, I'm everybody's boss, and I am sick, um, and they know I don't have paid time off. They know I don't have any money. They're bringing food by. Nobody knows what to do. You know, you know, we're not really friends. I'm their boss, and people were trying to show up. I didn't have new friends from having moved back to Vermont yet. All of my friends were in Seattle. And so that mom's group and then eventually another online uh, cancer group for queer people with cancer um, were like the two places I was go. And so what I noticed, I started asking those folks questions like, what do I do, meaning more existentially? Like, do I just stay the course and sit tight and hope this surgery works, right? And like go back to my life here or like, you know, do I have to do a different thing? And I think all of us were like rooting for me and my kids so much that there sort of became this idea that once I got out of the surgery, I would be healed. And I, it was almost like I wanted to be so that everyone who'd been so loving and caring to me and all the neighbors and everybody else could like feel relaxed and feel like I'm okay. And then they would like focus on someone else, that the being in the public eye and the being the woman, the single mom of twin toddlers with cancer who has no money, like that that part would go away. And instead it was getting louder as the, as the surgery came. And then the surgery happened. waking up in the recovery area and the first thing that I perceive consciously is just blinding pain and like so loud I could not even like metabolize where it was for a minute and what's interesting is the pain was not actually the first pain I, I that caught my attention was not at the surgery site I mean that was painful too I was having pain on the side and back of my head and I realized a couple of days later, I mean, this took me a minute and I was obviously not very lucid, but they put your head in a surgical halo for these kinds of surgeries, right? They have to hold your body, your neck, your head, your skull very still. And you are basically screwed in to a surgical halo like a vice. No one had ever mentioned that to me. I guess, you know, I'd watched Grey's Anatomy. I might have <laughs> intuited it, but I didn't, I didn't know that. So there was all this pain, right? And I would start to try to touch it and whatever. And they're like telling me not to touch it. And, and then I can kind of perceive there's pain here. And then the next thing I can perceive is that I can't feel a bunch of things. I can feel the pain on, on those spots that I now know were where the halo was born, you know, pressing in. And I can feel the pain where the surgery was. But there were other parts of my head and neck and face where I couldn't feel anything, right? Like when you go to the dentist. And that was my first indication that the surgery itself had had some impact on me. It had never even crossed my mind. I thought I would wake up and be like, fine. Suddenly I can't feel my own scalp or parts of myself. And I do remember before I was discharged asking someone about that part. And they said, yeah, you know, with, with big surgeries, pathways just get cut. So sometimes like things just don't connect and it can take a really long time. Sometimes it doesn't even come back. And I remember as I'm being like wheeled out of the hospital with my head wrapped up to come home and recover from this being like, oh, I, I wish someone had mentioned to me that there were some risks. Shortly after the surgery, you know, I, I could only afford to take a month off and I could only do that because people were raising money with a GoFundMe. 
I was starting to really get worried about money and about working, and I was very focused on getting back into work. And I realized now part of that was my own trauma response because if I'm back at work, then I'm fine, right? And my kids are fine and our future is fine. You know, it wasn't like work itself was pushing on me, although it was. It was me pushing on me to want to be able to go back to work. I am constantly in pain and in pain in all kinds of new and weird places that doesn't look anything like what I know. I have no balance. I am sometimes clear-minded and other times can barely speak. I have poor memory and everyone's like, well, you just had a big surgery and you know, your immune system is in a great shape. Just give it time. And I'm thinking, okay. But I was aware, like something is very different. Like I feel like I'm in a different brain and body, right? I would think this to myself. This doesn't feel like my body. It doesn't feel like my brain. And, and in like eight ways, not in one way or two ways, but many ways. And one of the things that happened quickly was I started getting um, intolerable tinnitus, ringing in my ears and hearing loss. So, you know, I now know that this was just another in the sort of systemic calamity of the, the stress on my system at that time and the load in my system. But at the time, I still thought about all this stuff as disconnected. So they send me for a scan just a few weeks after the surgery, which otherwise would have waited a bit, I think. And I get a call from a neurosurgery resident who works under the surgeon who had done my surgery. And she says, hey, do you have a minute? Um, yeah, so you had that scan, you know, and it was sort of like, I'm expecting you have an ear tumor or something. And she's like, I know this isn't the result you wanted to hear. And she tells me that they can see spots in my brain scan. So not in the ears, but on my brain. And she tells me this like at work, right? And, and now my heart is racing again. It's like another fault line. Like, I thought cancer's over. I thought, like, you told me if you take this part of my skull away, I'm good, right? Like, how could there be more lesions in my brain already? This just happened four weeks ago. So there's another flurry of appointments, flurry of workups and meetings. And I am told that because the surgery is so recent and high risk, you can't biopsy this or open my head back up. So I am going to need to do the chemo. And I have to, like, process that everything I just did was not the solution. And that now this is in my brain. Before the surgery, I had done like a will and a power of attorney. But it had been a little bit of an intellectual exercise. But this is the moment when I remember considering I might have to actually, I, I might not make it. Or if I do, I might like suffer and be very disabled and like we might need a different situation. And I was terrified and dissociating and you know I knew immediately I was going to quit my job and that was for a variety of reasons but I also did not have the economic option to stop working so I did the next best thing I could do which is I decided to move down near Dartmouth Hitchcock where my cancer surgery had been and where most of my care was being coordinated so I decided I would move down there so I could be near the cancer center for chemo and all of that and you know the kids were still really little like it was sort of like we can always move back right I just, this is what the situation requires. And I thought I need to get the easiest job possible, something I can do in my sleep, which for me, this is funny, but for me was becoming the clinical director of a behavioral alternative school <laughs> for kids who struggle with behavior and regulation mm -hmm. in school. So I took that job because I had a school schedule and because I'd done so much of that work, I knew that I, like, I could just walk in and do it, which I did. Um, but really what was going on is I was processing that I was holding these babies in another round of the Hunger Games, and it was getting worse, right? It was getting worse, not better. And I'm getting ready for chemo, and I am now struggling with so many different kinds of pain that no one knows, nobody knows what's going on with me, that I am at times unable to 
walk across a room without crying. I'm starting to have to have help. I can't get up and out of bed or up and down from the toilet by myself without crying out in pain and sometimes can't move, but I'm trying to hide this from my children. I think actually the hardest part during that whole first few years was the fact that I knew because of my training that my children really would be okay if I kept those few things I had mentioned earlier in place, that if I kept it feeling playful and loving and, you know, relaxed in our home and kept some routines in place and kept our people around us, that the rest of it really would work itself out for them, that they were young enough that that's really what they needed. But what that required of me was that even my own house was like a performance zone until they went to sleep. I was suddenly realizing I'm in this like intractable pain, pain in my neck, pain in my back. I now know that, you know, the surgery and the halo and all of that had done a lot of misalignment. But I also learned that it had given me surgical onset fibromyalgia, which is a thing that can happen in neurosurgery. So I now can see that these pain experiences, you know, some of it is this neuropathic pain from this shock event to my system. Um, but that's why everything was hurting. You know, I had ankles hurting. I developed plantar fasciitis. I was starting to have weird, like, skin headaches, like, right? Everything. But I would have to behave like I am not just a mother who, like, loves her kids and we're having the best day, but because I'm the only parent there, I have to, like, fill up the space even more, right? Like, I have to be on 24-7. I cannot go lay down for a nap. They were still too young. They were only three and a half. So I couldn't leave them unsupervised. I couldn't do anything but the labor of that. How many CMIMs? Two. Love you guys. Have you ever seen this film, Life is Beautiful? It's an old Italian movie. It's a Holocaust film. And the first part of it is about this Jewish family in Italy. And then midway through the movie, you find out that they are um, brought to a camp. The father is able to protect the tiny child who's like three or four in this movie from understanding that he's in a concentration camp by creating a magical like game of this. So he tells them these like his, you know, fanciful stories about who these soldiers are and these interesting bunkers we get to camp in, right? And he makes the whole experience of living in this camp just for the, his one child, just this one kid, into this magic game so that you see them go through this experience and this child never understands what's happening. And in a very real way, I had to spend years after that diagnosis performing like that father in my own home because my love for my children and my understanding of the stakes of that developmental period required it. You know, if they'd been teenagers, they would have needed a totally different thing. I could have, I could have farmed so much of that out to coaches and family members and stuff, right? But, but for little kids, like, that's not what they needed. They needed me to play Play-Doh. They needed art. They needed me to go outside to the park and laugh and have fun. That was five. Oh, that's four elephants. There are all these social media posts and videos of that time. And I can hear myself performing. I can hear myself performing for them. I can hear myself performing for my friends and family and telling everyone, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for your GoFundMe donations and all of your cards. And 
we're doing great, don't worry, everybody, right? I can hear it. And probably they could too, you know, all the adults, they could probably see it. The surgery is a better plan. So um, I'm going to be having neurosurgery next week, and I'm I'm thrilled. Hopefully you can tell I'm, like, thrilled about this, but um, it is a little fast, so i got to get some ducks in a row. Um, my family, my friend Kate, and... Um, and I think people maybe think that I was doing that because I was so traumatized that I was in, like, a distortion, like, that I didn't understand, and I was, like, just sort of hyper. No, this was my Meryl Streep. This was how... I decided to occupy it and put my mindset to it, both because my own nervous system was going to relax and my own immune system was going to be in best shape if our life felt more gentle and playful also. But if I was worried about them, if I wasn't performing this, then that would be so unacceptable to me as a career child and family therapist who specialized in this stuff. It was not acceptable to me that they would take a developmental hit, right? So I bore that out every day. And then when they would go to bed, it was like there'd be just this release, this release, these tiny moments of release uh, into this is so terrible. turned out I did not need chemo and those were not cancerous lesions. They kept scanning it and it never changed, which means it wasn't growing, right? It wasn't dynamic. And that is when the idea that maybe there had been, quote, a circulation injury or like an injury in the surgery started to get floated a little. So I, I got to stay from that, that part of the cancer experience, right? But I did live several months thinking that's what was happening. By the time everyone came to understand that my tumor really was gone, and that now I could focus on the recovery and the maintenance and all this, the constant monitoring. That is when I was able to put my mind to, okay, now I got to heal. Like I actually have to get better. So, you know, maybe a year of a process before I can tend myself and then two more years of bringing everything inside of me, everything, every piece of knowledge, you know, the, the, again, the, the entire canon of my training I called in every colleague who'd had anything to do with neuroscience, neurobiology. I read everything, listened to everything. What I was finally able to determine, you know, finally got an, an, a neuropsych evaluation. It took like 18 months to get in there. And I already knew what it would show. I told them what it would show, and it did. I know a lot about these, these batteries of t- exams as well, right? Like I knew exactly what I was waiting for, but I knew I needed data to show them that there were these deficits. Several permanent areas of brain injury, as well as a ton of areas that needed rehabilitation. But the ones that were permanent, a lot of them were visual. So visuospatial processing. My eye could not tolerate moving on a page, right? Or even on a Kindle or something, on a computer screen. It's not like I couldn't put the language together, but my eye could not do the movement to read for years. So I had to do all of this in these like hacked ways where I would just like find a workaround always. And meanwhile, you know, my kids are calling me finding mama after finding Dory because I have a working memory of like 30 seconds. I am, you know, dealing with pain. I am struggling with words all the time. And it was several years of basically making it my job. Like I was a Marine in training or something to in a certain sequence, rehabilitate my brain, 
recondition my nervous system, repair my immune health, and then get myself conditioned to be able to maintain that. So when did you make the switch from I'm literally treading water every moment of every day? Well, maybe it's felt like that for mm -hmm. a while. But when did you make the switch from sheer survival mentality to rehabilitation mentality? Or was, sure. it, was it more of a gradient? Parts of it were a gradient. But honestly, once I knew that I was not still fighting active cancer, right, that I was what they call non-active disease, it shifted my attention to the other problems in my body and at hand and to how those were playing out for me, the kids, work, and all my problems to solve. There were a lot of moving parts 2017 feels like a blur of, of suffering and trying to get all these things worked up. But 2018 was a year where I remember I was doing the kinds of health care that were more about rehabilitation. Jumping needle. Okay. I was going to PT a lot. I was starting to do some physical training and I was still very weak and I had terrible balance. But I started doing yoga every day. And I would just think about it like just go to the mat every day. Just go to the mat, go to the mat. And if all you can do is some stretches or one balance activity and you can't do it, well, okay, right? And at times I was in so much pain that I truly could not stand on that mat. But I could sit on it and I could stretch a certain way, right? And I was in bed a ton, sleeping a ton. But by the end of 2018, something was different. I came out of 2018 and moved into 2019 like much better shape. I finally was able to put the dots together. I had enough space and process to this that, that there was going to be some trauma processing. There was going to be some grief. There was going to be some loss. And that it was going to be big. And if I did not attend to that and set myself up for success with it, that it could take me down into depression, traumatic grief. And that's like, I just got myself out of this situation. I don't want to get myself into that one, right? So what I started doing in addition to all that physical stuff was putting my my time in places that I knew would create what I call neurogenesis, right? What neuroscience is called neurogenesis. Things that make you feel alive, a spark, something good, right? Literally put my brain and body and system into things, whatever they are, it doesn't even actually matter, that are novel or interesting or, you know, pleasant, joyful, funny. Natural things. sources exactly. of good brain chemistry. Exactly. Yeah. And that the more minutes, the more frequently, I did that. The more nooks and crannies I could do, create any of that, the more I would heal and the faster I'd heal. And, and that ended up being really true. So at that juncture where you move from survival mode to rehabilitation mode, mm -hmm. What helped and what made a difference? The biggest thing that made a difference in every stage of this was science. And I say that, you know, not meaning like medicine necessarily. I mean, medicine stabilized me, right? The medical system stabilized me. But the fact that I had so much access to information and knew how to apply it allowed me to do this in a way that I don't think other people would have done. So it was a real accelerant. And it also gave me confidence in what to focus on, which is a lot of the battles. So that's the first thing. When you say science, give me like, you know, your top few insights. Sure. In terms of brain science so that the, you know. Right. So the first thing 
is that I knew that when a trauma is still happening, and especially if you are still actively at risk or unsafe, or if your brain believes that it is, it actually doesn't matter if you are. It only matters if you believe that you are. Like when I thought those lesions that they were seeing on my scans were tumors, right, instead of brain injury, when it believes that it is, it will respond as such, right? It will always respond as though there's an emergency and there's a threat response. So I knew that there was a sequence that until I could feel safe medically, that I really couldn't do trauma processing. Like I understood that this was something that was going to need some different stages and pieces, right? So I didn't go to therapy right away because what would have been the point? I, I knew how to stabilize the panic attacks. You know, I taught people that. And I would often visualize myself like putting these things up on a shelf for later that at some point I was going to want to talk all this out. But I knew that that would need to come down the line. So a piece of it was in the sequencing, the pacing, and the prioritizing. Another thing that made a big difference was that I really understood, as did a lot of integrative health practitioners at that time who were making use of newer neuroscience, that this is a systemic thing happening to me. This is not a thing happening in my skull. This is not a thing happening in my left frontal lobe only. It is not a thing happening in my neck. It is a thing happening in the ecosystem of me. And that... And those around you. And those around me, correct. And that if I remained focused on it as an ecosystem and thought about how do you make us a living, breathing, dynamic, interconnected system healthy, just, you know, it's like, just keep putting your brain and body in that direction. If I slept... If I moved in the ways that I could, going swimming was like my only thing I could do, right? Because I was in so much pain. But I knew that any movement was good for many things in me. I knew that if I clean whole foods, even if it was simple, that just eating things that weren't full of junk had a substantial impact on my immune health. And so I, you know, I got more into things like supplementation, but I really went down the integrative and natural health route and not in a like woo-woo way, but in a way that was just really about the science showing me, you know, the truth. The truth is, there's about six things that determine about 80% of how you do or feel at any given time. And it's like, you know, sleep, stress, movement, creativity, nutrition, connection, you know, sense of belonging and safety, right? Like it's a few basic things. So I just would keep applying that toolkit. And I think that's why I credit science as the main thing. Another thing that made an enormous difference and, and something that I focus on trying to highlight a lot is mindset. And what I mean by that is not any one mindset. Like what the mindset is almost doesn't matter. It's not as simple as positivity. Right. No, I mean, maybe that's your mindset, right? Like if that's what gets you through, great, right? Mm -hmm. That would not have worked for me. What it does matter is when you are about to do something that is impossible, especially if you have to do it again and again, and you're not going to have time to have an opinion or a feeling about it, then you need to be able to practice a ton of boundaries and focus, right? You cannot spin off into orbit about everything. And that that comes from mindset. I think people need to look for a mindset that feels true to you, true enough that you could really practice it. And for me, the mindset was one of focus on the here and now, on what was right in front of me, with that sense of staging and sequence, I can get to other things later, and, and a mindset of letting everything fall away that wasn't on the plate of what was right in front of me, everything, wow. right? If my friends think I've all abandoned them, okay, like I guess that... If my car gets repossessed because I can't make the payment, like, I guess I have no car, right? You have to make a radical sort of space for that mindset. You can't decide to center your health and not tend the mindset because you won't follow through. I was so worried that I would die or be disabled or get more cancer that I was willing to let anything that wasn't about my survival go. Oh, how does the ocean say hello?
He waves. Ha ha ha. <laughs> I like the uh, ha ha at the end. What's a bunny with no ears? What? A carrot. <laughs> I have one more toe. Okay. I found true things, true phrases, true, you know, true thoughts from writers, a lot of women writers, etc. And what I did with those, I would borrow these little mantras to put my mind on when I was struggling with mindset, right? So what were some of them? You know, I used to supervise an addictions program. And this is like we had these addictions counselors that were taught me all these really cool um, addictions concepts. And, you know, the one day at a time stuff. And then and there's another one. They say next indicated step. Just focus on the next indicated step, right? So when I was spinning, even if I couldn't access my spiritual mindset or a thing to do, the phrase would pop up in my mind. What's the next indicated step? And sometimes that is literally like get up and go to the bathroom. You have to go to the bathroom, right? Like let the dog out. It is quite, you know, pragmatic sometimes. Sometimes next indicated step is it's time to leave the work I'm doing because it's not compatible with how I need to live and I need to make a plan for that. So sometimes it's going to point you in the direction of a thing you've got to figure out or a plan you need to make or a change you need to make. So, you know, it can be a big picture or small, but it's a very organizing place to go. And so I had a little list of those kinds of things. Next indicated step. Another one was try one more time. Sometimes I'd be in so much pain and I'd be doing these PT exercises and think like, I'm, I'm going to suffer. I'm never going to be upright again. I'm never going to be able to play with my kids. And I would hear, try one more time. Today, I live in a really physically mobile way most of the time. I do occasionally, if there's a lot of stress or I get out of my routines, end up in a pain episode. But for the most part, I live a very active life, very wide. I can do what I want. I was trail running by 2019, which is something I hadn't even ever done before. You know, I started paddleboarding to work on balance and became obsessed with it. And I'm a huge paddleboarder. And none of those things looked possible from the bed or from the, you know, from the, the walker that I had, from the, the casts, from all of that. It just looked like, hey, it would be nice if I could, like, walk without crying, right? But, but the truth is I can live this life because I understood just focus on the next indicated step, the next indicated step. And if I'd been too worried about I'm never going to be able to trail run, I don't think I would have done the work that turned me into a trail runner eventually, right? By the fall of 2019, I had spent over three years moving through this crisis. And, you know, with the first two years really being primarily about stabilization and managing enormous amounts of chronic pain, different kinds of chronic pain. It was a really confusing healthcare situation that involved years of multiple types of specialists. And I'd really had to dig deep and connect in with my professional networks and create my own plans for rehabilitating, not just some of the cognitive deficits and, and brain changes and losses that I'd experienced there, but also my body and without a lot of good information on why I was suffering so much. Fortunately, in late 2018, I finally received a diagnosis of surgical onset fibromyalgia, which is apparently a risk that can happen with neurosurgery. I did not know that. But that diagnosis opened up a world of options for me because communities that deal with fibromyalgia and other chronic pain conditions really had a lot to offer. So I didn't find a lot of medical <laughs> supports or solutions once I got that diagnosis, but it did allow me 
to put a lot of lifestyle pieces in place and to really focus um, specifically on sleep, on diet, on movement, keeping my body in good physical condition and managing stress, which again, by the fall of 2019, had really rocketed me to a new place physically. So not only was I finally mobile, but I was able to start doing things that I had never done before. So I was trail running, I was paddling all the time, I was able to travel and socialize and do things with my kids and be out in the world in a way that really felt like, at the time, like the end of a three-year climb. And in fact, My private practice, which I had grown, you know, not to just be doing private therapy clients, but also to be working as a consultant and trainer in education, healthcare, and early childhood education, was thriving. And in fact, I couldn't really keep up with the work that I was doing. So I felt for the first time in several years like I had choices. So I just remember fall 2019 being a time where I felt alive again. I felt hopeful. I felt like cancer and all of that was behind me and I had sort of done it. I had accomplished it. And I made the decision instead of to kind of continue to grow that private practice and consulting work to go take a big dream job in the Planned Parenthood system. There was a job to build out some new uh, behavioral health programs across the New England states. And it was a real opportunity not just to do some systems level work that I really wanted to do, but in a way to have a comeback, right? So I, I remember feeling so much like I am not on the disabled list anymore. I got that job and felt like myself. I felt like I had returned from that experience. And I started that job the first week of January 2020. And, you know, I think as everybody knows, <laughs> when we talk about anything happening in late, in late 2019 or early 2020, None of us could have been prepared for what was about to happen. But I do really remember feeling like 2019 as a year was amazing for me and that my body felt good, my mind felt good, and I felt like I was back in the world. So at that time, it had that very like standing on the top of a mountain feeling to me. And of course, just six, I think it was six or seven weeks after I started that job, we had our first emergency calls at work about this new coronavirus. And pretty quickly, I was working from a computer in my living room with my children, watching the entire world shut down, like everyone else. And like everyone else, I was processing so many things about this. But I will say, you know, having been through a crisis those previous few years, I wasn't disoriented about it. I was really clear eyed and I could see the scope of what was coming. And I just remember feeling like, oh, God, oh, God, I'm going to get stuck here alone in this house. I'm going to get stuck here alone for this thing that's about to happen after I just climbed myself to the top of this mountain. (laughs) And I don't know that there was anything I could have done or that any of us could have done to prepare for what was coming with the pandemic. But I do remember having a very clear sense that it was going to be very difficult to keep myself healthy and very difficult to keep myself emotionally healthy, present for what was coming. It felt very much like the world was shutting down on top of me after I had just climbed my way up out of a cave, out of my bed, out of all that pain. And, and then that's what happened. The world did shut down on top of us. And it was an enormous tumble 
into a mindset of Hunger Games preparedness again. Next time on part two of my state change story. Shauna, tell me about the wobble. Tell me what what a wobble is and tell me about your wobble. So I've been using this term wobble because it's so effective, whether you're talking to children, families, you know, training adults, talking to healthcare providers, everyone sort of intuitively can connect to this idea of that, you know, sometimes we are upright, right? And sometimes something comes along and it sort of knocks us over. And framing a crisis, uh, a negative experience, a challenge, you know, a health challenge, any of those things as a crisis produces a certain way of State Change Podcast is a production of State Change Media and recorded at Dialed Studio in Burlington, Vermont, on the shores of beautiful Lake Champlain. Our producer and sound engineer is Will Davis. Our story editor is Laura Rose Shepard. And I'm executive producer and host, Shauna Hill. Our show's theme music is by Phantoms, with additional music by Shimmer, Chelsea McGow, Falls, and Wicked Cinema. Special thanks to our guests for their courageous vulnerability. And to John Toda, Wesley Davis, and the incredible team over at Syntax in Motion for helping us bring this podcast to life. The State Change Pod would not be possible without our amazing village. And special thanks go to Coley Hapeman, Jens Hybertson, Hannah Rosen, Ebba Lukender, Kai Gurley, and our friends at Middlebury College's Innovation Hub. If you or someone you know is struggling right now, you make sense, you matter, and you are not alone. Immediate support for mental health emergencies is available by dialing 988 from anywhere in the United States or contacting your local crisis support service or healthcare provider. To learn more about State Change Media and our mission to turn mental health into public health for all, or to bring more brain-based resilience to your workforce, organization, or community, check us out at statechangemedia.com or on our socials at state underscore change underscore media. We would love to hear from you.